You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. So for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Cole Kirby. I have the, the privilege of serving here at Sojourn as one of the church planting residents, which just means that I am being trained and equipped under the, the leadership of our local elders, Marshall and Reed, for the work of eventually in the next couple of years going out and planting a new church in a different neighborhood here in Houston. Uh, And so part of that responsibility involves uh, preaching somewhat regularly and with Marshall, our pastor of vision and preaching, being out on um, a three-month sabbatical, I have been bearing the brunt of that load. Uh, And so this is the last week in, in the stint of me being at the pulpit every week, so you can all have a big sigh of relief that that that's the case. I know I am after preaching Sunday and then Wednesday and now again on Sunday that I'm exhausted and so I ask that you'd be graceful to me in that. Um, but as we, as we jump into Lamentations and really into the season of Lent, uh, which began on Wednesday, uh, my prayer is that, is that we would lo- learn how to properly and soberly assess ourselves um, and, and to properly and soberly assess sin and mortality and human suffering, that by Easter, we would be able to fully rejoice in the goodness of God through the resurrection of Jesus. Lent is a time in which we fast, in which we pray, and in which we reflect upon our sin in the process of repentance and turning toward our hope in Christ and his resurrection on Easter. It's a solemn season. It's a season in which we consider mortality and human failure. And and that can lead to sorrow. Sorrow, however, can be a beautiful means of grace. As our Savior himself is called by the prophet Isaiah, the man of sorrows. And so my prayer this morning is that as we mourn our own sin and the suffering in our lives, along with the suffering in the world around us, that we will find a deep need for Christ and that we would hope in him more fully. We know that in life there's no escape to death or to suffering, and all of us have or will experience both of those things to different degrees. Some of you are probably entering into the room in the midst of a season of deep suffering, of struggle or mourning. Maybe you've just come out of of this season and are beginning to find your joy restored but it is a fact that we will all suffer. And the cause of all suffering is in one way or another clearly revealed in the Bible as sin. Sin in the garden by our first parents, Adam and Eve, opened the door for suffering and death to enter in. God promised Adam and Eve that death would be the result if they ate the forbidden fruit. And he's a faithful God who keeps his promises. So with their rebellion our first parents became the first people to experience the shame and the sting of sin. And their family became the first to experience the pain of death and violence. And so today, as we enter into the first of five poems that make up the book of Lamentations, we will see a nation responding to destruction, to death, to sin, but we'll see them responding with the proper human response 
as we're taught in the scriptures, which is weeping, mourning, and reflection through lament. And I'm convinced that in this text, we will be given a very helpful insight into dealing with grief, suffering, and especially into dealing with our own sin and failure. Because I'm convinced that in order for us to truly repent and turn toward the grace that we have in God, we must first truly mourn our sin and the destruction that it brings. I'm also convinced that in order to truly mourn with those who are mourning, we must have a deep understanding of our own desperate fragility. So I would ask you to ask of yourself this morning, when was the last time my sin caused me to weep? Or when was the last time I allowed myself to appropriately mourn in the midst of my suffering or that of those around me? Preparing for this text, uh, for, for preaching this text and, and seeing the destruction that Jerusalem experienced in Lamentations 1 and how that's beautifully conveyed through poetry, I decided to call a family member of mine who has, who has experienced very deeply the weight and damage of sin in his life. Formerly a drug addict and alcoholic, my brother-in-law was on the phone explaining to me his road to recovery. He told me about something that is often referred to in the life of an addict as an endpoint. And endpoints are these moments in which an addict realizes that the lifestyle of addiction has to stop and they declare the most previous failure to be the last one. And for any of us in the room who have struggled with sin on any level, we can understand this. We can understand declaring a certain failure to be the last time that we will do that. And then he told me that for him and for many other addicts, there are often a lot of false endpoints before the true one that leads to freedom. He explained to me that a big part of his failure and, and a big reason for the false endpoints were a result of him believing that being an addict was just the way that he was. It's just who I am, he thought. And this struck me because all too often we normalize sin and its consequences. We do this with our own failures as we explain away our deepest flaws as natural character traits. We do this even with the deepest effect of sin in death, as, as when we mourn, we, we comfort ourselves by saying that, that death is natural. And in this, we fail to grieve it as a heinous and unnatural consequence of human failure that we cannot fix. And so as we see Jerusalem lamenting the suffering and destruction of a city that was once great, and as we see Jerusalem lamenting the sin and the failure that brought it about, we will know that these two things aren't disconnected. Suffering and failure. Death and sin. And so my hope this morning is that we will learn to properly lament to God when we are the victim of suffering and when we, and when we are responsible for it through sin. 
not so that we will leave this morning depressed or wallowing in our own guilt, but rather so we might find hope and beauty in the midst of our own weakness and despair. Um, A little context for for what is going on in Lamentations, a little added on to what, what was said before about Jerusalem having been destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., This was a result of years and years of the people of Jerusalem worshiping idols, rebelling against the commandments of God and oppressing even her own people. And eventually, as a result of that, being judged by God. Because God, though mercifully slow to anger, were shown in Scripture is a God that eventually must act in justice. And he did so as he allowed his people to be overtaken by the nation of Babylon. The city of Jerusalem fell. Historians would tell us that that many people were killed, many people were exiled. This formerly great city is now in ruins. Even the temple has been destroyed. We're told in, in Jeremiah and in Lamentations that even the high priests, the most prestigious leaders of Israel, are now searching for scraps so that they might find food in the midst of famine. And so the book is a collection of five poems responding to this disaster. And it's a beautiful reminder that God's people should be a people who truly lament, who truly weep and mourn over suffering and over sin. And I think it's a timely series for our church to be going through, not only because it's a season of Lent in which the church historically reflects upon sin, death and all manner of suffering with the hope of the cross and the resurrection in the future, but because we as Americans often avoid lament altogether. Triumphalism prevents us from having a good theology of suffering. And and, and that's the case even though no people group is immune to the effects of sin. We all experience death and suffering on one level or another. It's timely also because many of us don't want to face the fact that we're guilty or culpable for wrongdoing. Similar to the addict who says that this is just the way I am. Moreover, as post-enlightenment Westerners, we certainly don't want to admit any sort of helplessness. And so we make hard work and determinations the gods we serve because being helpless or hopeless isn't an option for us. And for others, we're just simply afraid to look inside of ourselves for fear of what we might find. So we put on a smile and we convince ourselves that we're just fine, especially as we play a nasty game of comparing ourselves to those less fortunate or more morally reprehensible than us. And so in this first poem in the book, we're going to hear from two voices. And both of them will involve Jerusalem being personified as a woman who will be called Lady Zion. But the first voice is that of a reporter, uh, an objective observer, who's explaining the tremendous downfall and loss experienced by the city of Jerusalem. The city described by the reporter is described as a widowed wife, as a royal leader who's turned into a slave, and as one who has no power over the enemy. The idolatry of Jerusalem is likened to adultery by the poet. And Jerusalem is the promiscuous wife who has had many lovers. 
And none of these lovers seemed to be there to comfort her in her time of suffering or need. Also, a bit as an aside in the text, we're going to see over and over uh, this language of, of sexual sin and marital unfaithfulness and physical assault used in the poem. Jerusalem will be described both, both as the offender in the marital relationship through adultery, but also as the victim of deep assault. And, and that's to be noted because we see that the author is using the most intimate and vulnerable illustrations of sin to show the deep emotional effects of the suffering of the city and the holistic destruction caused by sin. Jerusalem is an adulterous wife, but Babylon takes punishment to the point of assault. This is clear in verses 8 and 9, which shows the, the heinousness of Jerusalem's sin in serving other gods. The poet writes, Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. For they have seen her nakedness, her uncleanness is in her skirts. She took no thought of the future. But then a verse later in verse 10, she is a deep victim of suffering as the author describes Babylon's assault on the city in terms of sexual assault, when the poet writes, the enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things. For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. So the poet openly admits and readily admits to the failures of the people of Israel yet still proclaims that the suffering being experienced is so harsh and so painful. This is a protest to God, which is the definition of lament, a protest arising out of need. As the author cries out that the heathen nation of Babylon has now destroyed the temple and entered into it. This was something that the poet thought God was supposed to be opposed to. The very sacred space has been violated. And so the acknowledgement of failure or even partial responsibility for suffering does not mean that the suffering wasn't real or that the people of Jerusalem didn't experience victimization. It is as if the mistress Jerusalem is saying, I know I was wrong, but this punishment just doesn't fit the crime. This is a cry that many of us are probably familiar with. At least we should be if we've read the news at all over the past few years in our country. As we've seen police brutality and the backlash toward police brutality mount injustice upon injustice upon, injust upon injustice. The punishment never seeming to fit the crime. And so the pain for the poet is so strong and so real that he moves from using the voice of an outside observer to using the personification personification of Jerusalem as Lady Zion in the first person, crying out in verse 12, look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow. Look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow. Lady Zion continues to weep, and she speaks of her transgressions against God and his righteous discipline and judgment toward them. Yet she continually mourns the death of the city, and those who lived in it, confessing that she is lonely and has no one to comfort her. 
So the false gods that Jerusalem had worshipped were nowhere to be found in this time of despair or disaster. She says, I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. Israel, the adulteress, experienced assault, and none of her lovers in a fair came to rescue her or comfort her. And she's crying out, feeling that even her first husband is nowhere to be found. And in verse 20, we see the text climax as, Lacey, as Lady Zion cries out, Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. Experiencing the devastation of death all around her, Lady Zion is emotionally distraught and cries out to God, her first love. She calls simply for his attention, not even for his action. She tells the Lord that she knows what she has done is wrong, but that she is experiencing something so deep that she needs the help of God because no one else can seem to help her. We see her crying out a combination of real loss and suffering with real remorse and clarity. The poem ends with no real resolution. It's just protest and petition arising out of suffering and need. The city knows she has sinned and now knows the full weight of sin and being sinned against. Lady Zion, like my brother-in-law, reached an end point in verse 20. The effects of sin were finally too much for her, and she could not bear it on her own. She didn't cry out something about acting naturally as she has been created to act, and the death and destruction all around her just being the way that life is, and so she'll move on. No, sin and death are not natural, because humans were not created to sin or to die. Therefore, the experience of both of these things is painful and difficult. And Lady Zion is allowed to grieve them. And and we are allowed to grieve them as well when we find ourselves in situations of suffering. I would argue that even the biblical pattern, especially as we know now that all of the Bible is fulfilled in Christ, would suggest that we should grieve these things. When the friend of Jesus, Lazarus, died, Jesus wept at his grave. Sitting over the city of Jerusalem, our Lord Jesus looked upon a people who had rejected him and had rejected the Father for generations, and he lamented. Before his death, as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing the suffering he was to experience, Jesus was filled with sorrow. The prophet Isaiah calls him the suffering servant, the man of sorrows, and one acquainted with grief. Christ even knows the depths of despair that come from guiltiness as he took upon himself the sins of many and was punished for them on the cross. So we're not a people without hope, without a comforter, or without a sympathetic high priest. But we are a people who have much to learn from this text about lament. I think it's most important that we see the deepest experience of distress being responded to by crying out to God for Lady Zion. All else has failed her and her suffering is very great. 
Yet she does not vow to pick up the pieces of the city and rebuild it on her own. Nor does she turn back to the idols she once worshipped. They were liars making promises of joy, yet leading her to ruin. We see, as mentioned before, that Lady Zion reached this end point. And in my discussion that I had this week with my brother-in-law, he explained to me that there were times in which he realized that his addiction was hurting him. And so he would even try to do better on his own. He would pull himself up by his bootstraps and try to avoid the substances that once held him captive. Eventually, he told me that that these substances would come back making promises to him through temptation that he would end up believing, even though they were promises that could never be kept. The next high or drunken binge would surely be the best one, he thought. It would surely make him happy. Moreover, he was promised that it would surely make the pain of addiction and loss go away. And those promises continually proved themselves to be lies. And his end point came when he finally realized that those other lovers had deceived him. He knew that he must cry out to God because he couldn't fix it. His friends and his family weren't there to comfort him and they couldn't fix it if they were. And he knew that using again certainly wouldn't fix it. So he cried out to God with a churning stomach and a heart wrung dry. Likewise, this Lenten season, let us look upon ourselves with humility and examine our own sin. My hope and prayer for us is that we would be able to feel our stomachs churn and our hearts being wrung within us at the realization of our rebellion. Some of you in this room have been dealing with the same sins for years. I beg of you not to believe that that is just who you are. Weep over your sin. Realize its destructiveness. Sin leads to death, and your sin is not the exception to the rule. I pray that if your sin is not soon realized in such a way that it would cause you to feel distress, that you would experience deep worldly consequences as a result of it, in hopes that the Lord would use that as kindness to lead you to repentance, just like he did with my brother-in-law. Every one of us in this room we are promised, will eventually realize our sin and the death that comes with it. And my hope is that you would realize it in time to place your hope in Christ's death as the sufficient wager for your sin. Otherwise, your eternal death will end up serving that purpose as you're tormented continuously with remorse. My goal in saying that is not to scare you, but to warn you gracefully as the Lord consistently warns his people gracefully all throughout the Bible and specifically in this count of Jerusalem being destroyed. Don't you think that the people of Jerusalem wished that they had turned from their idols before Babylon came to destroy them? Before they were found in famine and ruins and in exile? Some of you in the room not only have to deal with sin this season, but you also have to deal with real and deep suffering that's not your fault. Maybe you're in the midst of turmoil in your family. You're mourning the death of a loved one or you're experiencing the effects of illness. Maybe you've just been deeply wounded by the sins of someone else. 
If so, you don't have to pretend that that's not real. You don't have to make yourself celebrate even though all you feel like doing is weeping. And you don't have to fix it or run devices to numb it. You can weep, you can mourn, and you can protest your suffering to a God who will hear you, who will understand you, and who will respond to you. Even more, you can do all of these things in weeping, mourning, and protesting your suffering to a God who deeply loves you. You can do this whether or not your suffering is a result of your failure or just a result of the broken world that we live in. Because we're not a people without hope. We have fullness of hope in our King Jesus. He has been crucified for the forgiveness of sins and has been resurrected for the fullness of life for his people in victory over death. But before we can fully experience the joy of obedience and repentance or satisfaction in new life, we must first understand our desperate need for it. We must see our sin and become sick at the thought of it, knowing that it is destructive to us and that it's offensive to a holy God. We must confront the suffering in our life and mourn it, knowing that we can't just make it go away on our own. In the temporary, this might be a very painful process. But it will also be a very graceful one. Let's commit to a Lenten Lenten season of fasting, praying, and reflecting upon our sin and mortality in hopes that it will lead to a celebration of new life and true repentance with the resurrection on Easter. If we truly commit to this sort of reflection and response, to our own sin and the sins of the people around us, it will not only lead us to repentance and reliance on Christ, which will lead to life, but we will be more equipped to deal with future struggles. We will also be more equipped as a people to care for people around us who are struggling with grief, with sin, with oppression, because we will then know, too, that we are desperate and that we're helpless apart from the intervention of a holy and gracious God in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, you are our only hope. I pray that this season, as you turn over stones in our hearts that maybe we're terrified will be overturned, that you'd be gracious to us. Because you're our only hope. Lord, we pray that you would make the weight of our failure very clear so that the magnitude of your grace toward us in Christ is also made very clear. Would we trust in you more, Lord? Would we weep and mourn bitterly over our failures and the suffering around us, knowing that we have hope in a conquering king? Make much of yourself in us this season, Lord. It's in your name that we pray.